I've tried to make a podcast about four times on one subject, and my phone keeps crapping out somewhere in the middle. So I assume I'm not meant to talk about that <laughs> subject, which really pissed me off because that was my attachment, I guess, was wanting to talk about a certain subject. And it brings me actually to a question someone asked about, why don't I feel happy after I've reached a goal or gotten some kind of fulfillment of something I've wanted to do for a long time? And my first thought was, that's because you were attached to the outcome, not to the journey itself. But then I had to laugh about my podcasts that I tried to make that kept getting sabotaged by my phone and spirit that I was attached to the outcome of I'm doing a podcast on this particular subject. And the universe told me four times, no, you're not. (laughs) So we can start with an outcome. I want to get a PhD. I want to lose weight. I want to have a relationship. I want to achieve this goal. And more and more, I have come to see that setting an outcome is kind of like putting a carrot on a stick in front of a donkey, the old picture, in order to motivate that being to keep moving forward and not look at anything else. Follow the carrot, follow the carrot. So that if you fall into a ravine, oops, it's because I was following the carrot, not being on a journey and looking at everything else that's going on. I'm just going after the carrot. This is how people end up in bad relationships. Like, oh, he or she is going to give me the money I want, the children I want, the house that I want the life that I think they're going to give to me. This is how people end up stealing. This is how people end up doing things that betray themselves and betray others, is following the carrot and getting so one-focused that you're willing to step off cliffs or step into a bear trap or break your own leg or stop eating and stop playing and stop caring about what's going on because there's that carrot and it's just One more step in front of me, outcome addiction. And in a capitalist society, you can bet it's outcome addiction on steroids. I think I mentioned this before about a wonderful um, suggestion I heard from another podcast, I think from one of Brene Brown's, which is you pick a goal. But then you pick two practices to do and you start just doing those practices and forget the goal. And I love that idea because what we're doing then is finding a way to motivate ourselves to change our behavior and our lifestyle rather than trying to get something. And my outcome addiction with podcasts are maybe this will keep my business going, bring people in. There's an outcome that I've been attached to instead of the process. 
And what is the process for me? That's inner work that I have to find out. Why do a podcast? What What is there other than I should do this because this is what businesses say they should do? This is why I do this with my husband or wife, because then I'll get the good marriage. There's the outcome again. So instead, if I'm doing a podcast, because it helps me think things through for myself, it helps me do my homework on looking at my own progress and my own changes over the years, that changes the whole process the whole adventure of doing a podcast as opposed to, I need to do this because that's what I was told helps business in this day and age, is podcasts. (laughs) I might be doing the same behaviors, but because of changing the process, the energy is going to be completely different. One is mechanistic, one is heart-inspired. Setting an outcome, like I'm going to get a degree, great. That's how you start. Now you just got to leave it, let it go. And now you want to look at how do I get enrolled? How do I treat this class? How do I deal with conflicts with the professor? What do I do about my fear? What do I learn when I fail the class and have to take it over? What am I learning about myself and my ego? What am I learning about my intelligence? Nowhere in there is, where's my degree? Where's my degree? Where's my degree? So then you get your degree and you go, "Uh, so what? What was the point? Why am I so sad? And I actually have had a taste of that. I finished a PhD at 60 did not want to get it, had to get it to keep working as a professor. I The only way I could stay employed was to either have a PhD or be in the process of getting one because the accreditation laws for teaching at an accredited college changed even though I had already been a professor for like 15 years. I could no longer teach, so I had to get a PhD. And when I graduated, it was such an empty feeling because originally... It was, I need to get a degree to keep my job. But by the time I got the degree, all I felt was, that was a shitload of work, and nothing changed. The world didn't explode into fireworks. No one congratulated me. I didn't get a new job. My income didn't increase. I suddenly wasn't called doctor. Nothing changed. And I realized I still had a residual of outcome addiction, which is when I graduate, something is going to go off, bells, whistles, fireworks, butterflies released, doves flying overhead, something surely was going to happen, and it didn't. (laughs) And that was a big revelation to find out how deeply buried that little addiction was, that Something was going to be different and how depressing it was that nothing was different other than I now had a ginormous amount of free time that for the last 10 years had been channeled into getting a degree. It's kind of the same thing with raising kids. 
why women go into postpartum depression. Yes, we could say it's hormonal, and if you eat crappy and you're exposed to a lot of chemicals in your shampoo, makeup, deodorant, laundry soap, and household products, you are overestrogenated and you already have a mood disorder. So that alone can cause postpartum depression. But even if you're super healthy, some women have that. And there's that outcome. I'm going to have a kid and the unconscious and the subconscious have all of these. Yes. And then this is going to happen when I get the outcome of the child. And of course, it doesn't. It's ta-da, I have a kid. And guess what? Nothing's changed. Work just got a lot harder. If you do work, motherhood just got like instantly brought in, especially if you don't have a mom or a dad or a best friend or a nanny to stay with you. You're now breastfeeding and diapering and getting back in shape. And oh my God, it's nothing like you were expecting with your fabulous, hidden from you fantasy of an outcome goal. It's insidious, very hard to catch. I mean, I was shocked to find out I still had an outcome attachment to the PhD. I didn't even know it was there until it showed itself. Now, I'm not victim shaming. I'm not shaming women for postpartum depression. No, 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 no. I'm trying to explore a topic. And that was a really good example to me because I see so much of that, even with healthy women who are not toxic, but add toxicity to it, it's going to be 10 times worse. You see it even uh, people lose weight, and they get down to their goal weight. And then they hit a depression. And then sometimes they re-eat and gain the weight back. And the depression is, once I lose weight, I'm going to have a better sex life, I'm going to have a better dating life. I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to look in the mirror and I'm going to be happier. And you didn't know that you had all those secret agendas running inside of you. So you accomplish this really hard goal and you crash. What to do about this? Because I don't think you can dig this up by yourself. I will say with some, I guess, arrogance, if I couldn't find my attachment to PhD goal, a degree I didn't even want to get, and I'm 60, and by that time I've already done like 40 years of work on myself, then no one can. And I don't know if that's true, but I know it is true for me that how could I have not caught that myself given all the things I've worked on and studied and practiced in my life. So I'm going to say it's pretty insidious. In other words, it's hidden deep, deep, deep inside of us. Instead, if we focus on the journey, we focus on how each class goes, how it feels to lose weight, how nice it is to be able to put on any set of clothes as you lose weight, instead of trying to find the ones that make you look not fat. Then by the time you get to your target weight, it's just another day. 
And also, I'm planning that I have more free time. Because once you achieve your outcome goal, you don't have to work as hard. It's maintenance now rather than getting through. In other words, once you graduate, you've got a shit ton of free time to where you're not studying and worrying about a professor and studying for a test and writing papers. Once you've lost weight, you don't have to weigh your food, watch everything, maintain social distance so you don't overeat, over drink. Now you just have to kind of put into place a maintenance plan and make it a lifestyle. And you've got free time. Uh, sometimes you hear empty nesters talk about how much they plan for the empty nesting part, knowing that having so much free time from their kids, even though their kids have already been teenagers and separated a lot, when they go off to college or maybe they've graduated from college and they're going off to, you know, have their own life, you're going to crash and burn. Even though you're like, I can't wait till they get out of the house. Do you have a plan? So working with outcomes is a little bit tricky. I don't know if you can avoid having outcome addiction or an outcome goal. Because when you go to school, you don't say, I'm just going to take a class and see how it goes. You go, no, I'm going to go for four years or 10 years to get this degree. Like, that's why you're going. And then you have to switch gears and make each class count and make your lifestyle count. And as you get closer to the end, have a plan on how to make a lifestyle change because now you have all this free time. Sometimes you'll see this also after a spouse that you're taking care of or a parent you're taking care of or a child, unfortunately, who's dying. So you spend four, five, six, ten 10 years with them dying. And then when they die, you have all this free time. And it's a bit of a freak out. And you can't always plan for that. Like you can't, most people, I would say, cannot say, while they're sitting with someone who's dying. Well, if they're dead in six months, then I'm going to go on a ski trip to Switzerland. But if they're dead in uh, 10 months, uh, I think I'll go to Hawaii, you know, because it'll be summertime there or something. You just wouldn't sit with someone who's dying and make those plans. It would just feel awful. I'm not sure this is something that you can prevent rather than simply anticipate it's part of the process. Kind of like uh, one of the biggest things I see is when people lose weight, even if they anticipate that they'll be more attractive and they'll feel more attractive, a lot of times people can't handle how much attention they get from others, especially sexual attention, once they lose weight, they, even though they, that they were thinking, I desire that, I want that. That's part of the reason I want to lose weight is to feel attractive again. When they are attractive, it's overwhelming. Like, yikes, what do I do with everyone flirting with me and trying to get in my pants? And they're, they're suddenly paying attention to me and they're winking at me and everybody's talking to me in the store. And when I was overweight, no one wanted anything to do with me. So even though you knew that might happen and you were hoping it might happen, when it happens, it's a bit of a freak out. 
So I would say plan on that when you're working on something specific that is time limited, a degree, losing weight, having children for a certain amount of time, um, anything you're doing that's going to be kind of task oriented and has a finish line, the very least you can do is understand that at the end, you're going to have to do some self-care. It might be that you hit a big depression, like, gee, I finished school and I still don't have a great job and now I'm in debt and I have all this free time and what was the point? Well, if you know that that might be coming up, make sure you have a therapist lined up or go get one or go uh, see your teacher or a healer and get a skill set, get some hand-holding, get some company to help you transition through the slight depression or maybe large depression that happens once you cross a finish line. And whether you have people there cheering you or not cheering you, if they're there cheering you after cheering at a big party, they, they leave and there you are with your trophy and a lot of free time. And if there's no one there, sometimes that's a relief and sometimes that's more depressing, like, wow, there's not even anybody at the finish line who gives a crap. Okay, so that was another mountain I climbed, and now what? This kind of ties into the podcast I was trying to do that I was trying to talk about. <clears throat> you can't plan on doing everything right. There is no one right way to do everything. There is no way to avoid the ups and downs of human growth and spiritual growth. You're going to hit depression, confusion, grief, despair, anger, rage, abandonment. It's, it's going to come. But by doing spiritual work and doing work on ourselves, we're able to recognize it and respond and be more resilient faster, quicker, a bit easier, and definitely much more interesting. And also we tend to avoid going into victim mode. In other words, why is this happening to me? And after all the work I've done, and this shouldn't be happening, and poor me, we can more quickly get to, yeah, I kind of knew this was going to happen. And ah, this really sucks. And all right, I got to kick in the high gear of self-care, resiliency, a little bit of reparenting, reorganize my lifestyle. And what we can say is that maybe what would be a roller coaster ride for other people for you turns into a series of speed bumps so it's not quite so dramatic, so taxing. But even if it is, it's okay. There's a great book with a lot of sense of humor called, I think it's called ET 101. It stands for Extraterrestrial 101. And it's a funny, funny book about, okay, you're incarnated, you're a human, and you lost your manual when your spaceship crashed. So we're going to talk to you about everything that was in the manual that you already read and you already know about, but you might have forgotten. And it's very, very funny. There's one chapter, I think it's called, I'm not a walk-in, which is a new age term for some other entity comes over and takes over your body and you're no longer there. 
this higher spirit is now living in your body. Yet somehow you know this. <laughs> Enough of you is still there to remember this. It's a silly new age concept, in my opinion, um, the way it's been used anyway. Is there something like that? Yes, but it's nothing like the new age people turn it into. So in this book, they say, I'm not a walk-in, I'm a crawl-in. And I just had to totally laugh because I can relate to that feeling that, you know, I left my body and life was so bad, I, I don't even know where I went. And then when I came back, it was on my hands and knees, <laughs> just praying that I could keep going. And that's how it goes sometimes. And for some reason, perhaps it's the new age nonsense coupled with capitalistic American society, most of us have this outcome thing of if I meditate enough, if I do enough new age stuff, if I talk to enough dead people, if I do enough past life regression, I won't ever go through this again, whatever the this is that you're trying to avoid. <laughs> I won't ever be so depressed again. I'll never be abandoned again. Um, my kids will finally leave home. Uh, the weight will drop off, whatever, whatever it is. And that's all nonsense. <clears throat> The reality is, is that no matter how advanced you are, you're going to go through some stuff. And are there avatars and guru leaders where that's not true? Possibly. But especially if you're listening to all the cult revelation, revelatory podcasts these days, you'll know things like Yogi Bhajan and Maharishi and Sai Baba and Rajneesh and all these people that were like, oh, these are guys who have been meditating forever and their life is pretty perfect and they're pretty perfect. Whoops, turned out to be a bunch of nonsense that <clears throat> they were addicted to opioids, they did sexual abuse, etc. So I'm not trying to say that spiritual work is all cultish, a lot of it is. But what I'm trying to say is I have yet to meet a human being no matter how much they meditate, no matter how amazing they are, who doesn't go through hell occasionally. So there is no right way to do something to get the outcome where you won't suffer. That's <laughs> just not going to happen. And there's, a, there's that insidious outcome again. You know, if I meditate more, if I do this more, if I do that more. Instead, if we make our journey more interesting, more rewarding, more heartfelt, more authentic, more rewarding, where we're proud of ourselves, we're proud of our choices. Um, we can look back on many of our days and just go, I'm good. I'm a good person. That was good. I like this. I'm proud of myself. I'm courageous. I'm honest. I'm helpful. I'm fun, etc. Then when shit hits the fan, you can remember this is in the context of a generally good life. And that takes it from roller coaster down to speed bump plan. I remember John Gray, men are from Mars, talking about that when a relationship starts, you want to build up a basement a foundation of fun and good times so that when the relationship gets hard, you can remember that the relationship 
has up to that point been wonderful and fun and good. The point being that when relationships got hard, you could easily put it into perspective because you built this basement and first floor foundation that we're basically really good together. So this isn't a roller coaster. It is a speed bump. Now that foundation had to be built authentically, not on getting drunk together and smoking weed together and being in fantasy land together like, say, oh, we've been traveling for two years. We're amazing together. Well, you're amazing together when you're traveling, but if you're counting on not traveling for two, you know, for the rest of your life, that may not be a realistic foundation. So you can do the same thing with yourself, which is the basic foundation is my life's good. I'm good. I'm a good person. I, I like who I am. I like what I do. I like my choices. I like my priorities. I like where I spend my money on, on helping people or supporting people who are doing good work if I don't have the time to actually help. Uh, you know, I'm not spending all my money on frivolous stuff. I'm not spending all my time at parties and getting drunk. I'm actually uh, spend some time being of service or playing music or being creative. And then when shit hits the fan, which it will for everyone, you get to keep that in context of, okay, this is tough, but I, I had a great six months or even... If you have to get, take it smaller, I'm in a really bad day. It's like, yeah, but the rest of the week was pretty damn good. And actually, if I use my wonderful left brain and do sort of a pro and con list, I can say, yeah, this is a speed bump. Or it might have been a car accident, but it's a car accident. The rest of the week was good. And that's not being Pollyanna-ish. That's not being in denial. That's keeping things in perspective. One of the ways to do this, something I've talked about a million times, is start keeping a little notebook. And I say a notebook because if you're writing something down, somehow it seems a little more polite than texting in the middle of a conversation or a meeting. Start tracking what's working and what's not working in your life. Like every day, just a few notes. Great conversation with G. Um, won an argument with X. Went to the beach. Broke my diet. That's the not working list, right? So that when you hit what might feel like a roller coaster, you can go to your little notebook, flip through it by date, and remind yourself it's a speed bump, not a roller coaster. And that helps to build resilience. It helps to build trust in yourself. It also starts to teach you to pay attention more to the journey than the outcome. And sometimes if you have a bad outcome goal, like I want to make more money, and you start tracking what's working and not working, maybe you'll find out that what you're doing to get to your outcome is unethical, like perhaps you know, extorting money or uh, cheating on someone in order to sleep with someone else in order to get ahead in your career or something like that. Thinking of the entertainment industry like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby. And again, I'm not victim shaming, but if Harvey Weinstein had been a janitor instead of a link to an outcome of having a big career in show business, 
I don't think he would have been able to seduce people into bed. People had outcome addictions. And I totally think Harvey Weinstein was a dog. And I think the women were victims and a lot of them were young and innocent. So please don't take this as victim shaming. I'm trying to make a point that if you start tracking what you're doing, what's working and not working, it can help you figure out if you are selling yourself out, if you are betraying yourself and your beliefs because you got addicted to your outcome of either more money or a career or a connection or an in or something. And then you can decide it's worth it. Like maybe you decide it's worth it to sleep with Harvey Weinstein to get a starring role in a movie. Okay, then at that time, that's worth it to you. Not a bad decision. That's a lot less painful than waking up and kind of discovering that you didn't realize how much you were betraying yourself by doing something like that. So tracking what's working and not working can help you also keep track of your integrity, your choices, your morality. How is your journey of being a superhero going? Are you still being a superhero? Are you being a schmuck? And you get to find that out. It's really helpful if you tend to be uh, like a raging codependent, uh, codependent in recovery by noticing, am I overgiving in order to reach an outcome, to keep a friendship going, to um, appear to be nice, to appear to have value uh, to other people? Am I selling out some big uh, standards that I usually keep for myself? Am I letting someone touch me that I want them to touch me? Am I hanging out with this person because they're super cool and I think I'll get their superpowers if I spend time with them? And a lot of times you can't answer that question without looking at your behavior and you can't always remember your behavior unless you track it. And only by tracking it can you see if it's a pattern versus an event. An event is one time, two times. The pattern is over time, which means to me, if it's not working and it's a pattern, it's something to work on. If it's an event... Sometimes that's circumstantial, situational. Trying to not have an outcome is a really advanced skill. It's in the Eastern traditions, much easier in capitalist society, hard. Everybody asks, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are your plans? It's and the people I find that say they're going with the flow, they're always people who get high. I have yet to meet a sober American who's going with the flow. They're microdosing, so-called microdosing, taking 10 times the amount. So it's, you know, trying to not microdose. They just can't find a way to get mushrooms or something. Or they're taking so much CBD that, you know, which is now chemically grown, not organic for the most part. You might as well be taking pharmaceuticals, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the side effects of the chemicals. So they're CBDing themselves to death. They're drinking, um, vaping, 
uh, sugaring, etc. And they're saying they go with the flow. No, you're high. That's different. So to really go with the flow is a big deal. It is <clears throat> understanding the general direction that the river is going in. And then saying, we'll see what happens when I get there. And I'm not even sure how we'll get there. This is kind of a mundane example, but I'm trying to think of an example. It's the only one I can come up with right now. Uh, years ago, I went to Bali. I wanted to go for like 20 years. And it always takes me like 20 years to get somewhere I want to go, apparently. <laughs> so I had a ticket to Bali. That's it. I had no idea where I was going to stay, what I was going to do. I was actually joining a friend. She was flying uh, from another city and was going to join me the next day. So I'm inside because of the wind and I'm cooking food for my dogs as I talk because I can't sit and do these podcasts. I'm too physical to do that. Sorry. So I got on the plane. And I didn't even know where I was going to go once I landed. I just knew Bali wasn't that expensive at the time. I don't know what it's like now. So I figured I'd get off the plane and take a little taxi somewhere and lay up and see what was going to happen. I don't even think, it wasn't even cell phone days or anything at that time. Pre-cell phones. So on the plane, I met someone who lived in Santa Cruz, who had a store in Santa Cruz with a business in Bali that made stuff that she would come to Bali, pick up the stuff and take it back with her to Santa Cruz and she would uh, sell that stuff from her store in Santa Cruz. I meet her on the plane, long story short, we have a giant conversation. She tells me to come to her house. She, she picks up my friend the next day from the airport, uh, helps her avoid getting all her stuff stolen by customs agents who were completely corrupt at the time. And she has a masseuse and a cook and we get all that stuff done and she gets us a rent-a-car. Long story short, she kind of became the hub of our trip there that we left from her house and came back to her house and we made a friend that I met on the plane and everything was taken care of. And that was a go with the flow, which is, I knew I was going to Bali, and after that, I had no idea. That is a, and that was a vacation, right? And even that, for many people, work, working like that, going like that, is really hard, if not impossible, especially sober. Again, I've heard these stories from other people, about, yeah, I did stuff like that. And, you know, I was on mushrooms, and it's like, yeah, when you're high, uh, a lot of your fear and anxiety is handled for you by the drugs. So that's a whole different experience. <laughs> now, take the Bali trip and turn that into life choices like, I'm going to move to this town and I'm going to do a business that's never been done before, especially in this town. And I'll see what happens. And I have no support system, no friends, no family, no money. And uh, we'll just see what happens. Oh, and I have large animals to take care of that I can't show up in someone's living room and say, can I put my horses in your bathtub? That's going with the flow. <laughs> 
and there's no outcome there. There's no outcome addiction. What there is, is I hope to God this works, and I don't know what I'm going to do if it doesn't. It's not something I casually suggest to people to try, because to me it is either an advanced skill or your life chart, whether you use astrology, Akashic Records, numerology, or whatever, demands it of you. In other words, it's built into your life that you have to master this or die, basically. So learning to go with the flow, so to speak, might be something that you want to try, but I would not try it without having an actual spiritual practice. In other words, <clears throat> I wouldn't try this without being able to be a meditator. And by a meditator, I mean silent meditation, not guided meditation, not brainwave altering meditations, not music meditations. Those are all great, but those are not the meditations where you uh, get to sit still and feel what's going on inside of you, your fear, your anxiety, and where you get to sit still and receive teaching and healing from source, from a power so much more intelligent than us that the transmission is without words. It is literally like a direct download and then the files have to kind of get unzipped over time as you can handle it. Until you get to that point, you can certainly do this work, kind of step-by-step -step work of finding out if you have some secret outcome agenda. And if you do, that's okay. What you want to do then is look at how can you track it and how can you do self-care around this. That's the best you can do. Self-care and learning from it until, if you ever do, evolve into more of this place of go with the flow. I'm going to see what's hap going to happen. So there's actually a pretty wonderful book kind of about, about this idea of unhooking from outcomes. And believe it or not, it's weird. It's called The Shack, and it's a Christian book. And it's more along the lines of Christian mysticism, which is the idea that God works in mysterious ways, meaning it's not if I do one, two, three, four, I get five, six, seven. It's more like I do one, two, three, four, and I end up with 13, 22, and 47. It's a, quite a brilliant book. It's a little bit brutal to read. I don't know if there's an audio version of it. Um, I saw a film, I think it was called The Train, a Polish film. It was very, very similar. It was about how when we kind of, as they say, let go and let God, the path to freedom and happiness and all the things you think you want is a very twisted path. It's not an outcome and then you do all the steps to get their path. It's not that at all. 
So you might want to listen to that if you want to get an idea. When I know when I first read The Shack, I was a little horrified. It's like, oh, this is horrible. This is so hard. This is so hard. And it is. But I've seen it in action in real life. And I also say this is the way it goes. And not just for spiritual people. This is the way it goes. And if we know this is the way it goes, we can do a lot better self-care with it. Because it takes a lot of faith and trust. And faith and trust are behaviors. They are not beliefs. You get faith through action. And through these actions and through things that happen, faith evolves is the best way I can describe it. You don't get to go, I trust Jesus and Jesus is good to me. And yeah, those are all great words. And sometimes people use them to be in denial. But how we have faith is we've jumped off the cliff a few times. We've been pushed off the cliff a few times. And not only have we landed on our feet, sometimes we've learned to fly. So when I talk about these things, one of the things I see people do is like they'll read about Buddhism or they'll read psychology or they'll read Zen. And then they try to behave like the book says you're supposed to behave. But what the books are describing is how you'll end up if you do a practice. If you do this practice, you'll end up being granted, being given detachment. If you do this and have this practice, you will be given the gift of faith. So you can't work it the other way around. Like I meet a lot of American Buddhists and like, I don't get mad. Oh, really? You just decided you don't get mad even though we've been given anger by spirit. So it's not an accident, but you've decided that anger is bad because you've read enough Buddhist books and you don't want to be angry because you want to be a good Buddhist. So you're going to shut down your anger which means you're definitely going to get some kind of cancer or autoimmune disease as far as I'm concerned because you can't shut anger down. What you can do is up your spiritual practice so less and less stuff makes you angry. So a lot of times when people study spiritualism or religion, they try to practice the outcome. But what the books are describing is this is what happens naturally as an outcome of the practice. You can't go for the outcome itself. It doesn't work that way. It's backwards. I hope this isn't too confusing. But I see this a lot with people who have been around either New Age or heavy religions. They act like the religion, or including the New Age religion, which I consider to be a cultish religion at this point. They act like how they're told they should be acting if they're so-called advanced or religious or spiritual. So they do the behavior, controlling it and repressing themselves rather than doing the practice that will give them that behavior naturally. I hope that makes sense. So going back to why do I get so disappointed after I reach a goal, I would say... You just learned you had an outcome addiction. You didn't know it. That's okay. And you have to do a hell of a lot of self-care 
to fill in the empty spaces now that's struggling for your outcome and you've reached your outcome now that that's happened and it's over. Now you're going to have to figure out what else to do with your life and find your own way to celebrate all your hard work. And also look at what were you hoping was going to happen with your outcome that didn't, you just got your outcome and nothing changed. So you were hoping something would happen. How can you give that to yourself as part of self-care? Let's say you graduate from college and you're like, ta-da, my life's going to be different and better. And there you graduate and it's not. Well, maybe you need to start looking for a job before you graduate. So when you graduate, you go, not only did I graduate, I got a great job. Maybe if you know you're going to have a kick-ass test in a class that's really hard, that you plan to have a celebratory lunch, dinner, or a walk in the park, no matter what, because you got through that fucking class that kicked your ass. Or maybe you know you're going to be depressed after... What is it, Hoshi? What is it? that you're gonna be kind of depressed after you have a child. So you make sure you're gonna have friends around, a nanny, mother-in-law, husband, wife, somebody, because you know you're probably gonna crash and burn because you worked so hard to get pregnant and have this baby. And then you know once you get it, it it's, there's always this kind of aftermath. It's kind of like, I, I actually heard somebody recently talk about that there was a job where this person hired themselves out to be company. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. This person hired this man to be waiting for him at the finish line of a marathon because he didn't want to cross the marathon finish line and not have someone there cheering for him. So he hired this guy to cheer him on and celebrate with him, a total stranger. And I know that sounds sad, and it, it is sad, but a lot of us are completely alone with no families and no friends having had to move or something and have no people and to be able to have the money to hire someone who's there to celebrate with you to me is great self-care and apparently he got hired to be there for when somebody woke up out of surgery that there'd be someone there going I'm so glad you're here and blah 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 as a friend because they don't have any people here so knowing that there is some finish line coming up and knowing there's a good chance you might crash and burn at that finish line, why not put some self-care into place before that happens? Whatever that self-care looks like, hiring a stranger to be your friend for that crossing the finish line moment, as far as I'm concerned, great idea, nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of folks out there with no humans on the planet, myself being one of them, and it can be really, really rough. And I would say any self-care, that, especially if you're sober, is a really great idea. And sometimes you do have to have an outcome addiction to get get there, like losing weight, like you you like say your doctor says lose weight or you're going to die when you're going to need knee surgery back surgery and foot surgery at your weight so you get to it and you know you're going to cross that finish line and once you do you're going to be mad sad depressed whatever because you put so much work into this 
And once you cross the finish line, not a whole lot's going to change except your doctor will say, okay, you're healthier now. So why not plan ahead? Like uh, I knew when my PhD was coming and when I graduated that there wasn't going to be one person there at the finish line. So I planned a trip and I planned a little reward for myself, even though I really couldn't afford it at the time. I still did it as like a gift to myself after 10 years of work and knowing that there was going to be a little bit of crashing after that. So outcome addiction, I don't know if it's 100% avoidable. Even if you learn detachment and, you know, you're spiritually advanced and you have a practice, etc. We are constantly learning as humans. And as my teacher said, our job is to make mountains into molehills. That's what a spiritual practice gives us. And I don't know if we ever hit a completely flat road. I, I have not heard of one person doing that. And usually what I count on is the accounts, the reports of the people around the person who is a spiritual practitioner or something, also saying, no, how they appear is how they really are. And so far, I haven't heard of anybody with a completely flat road. And one of the reasons I love people like Pema Chodron is that she always talks about her own challenges and how at 70, she did some really stupid behavior that destroyed a friendship or um, how her own teacher died and she wanted to get another teacher and how painful that was. And I admire her work and her practice and she still has speed bumps. So you might have outcome addiction. Great. Do it but then plan for the crash and burn afterwards so it doesn't blindside you, so it becomes a molehill, so you know it's going to happen. You know, plan to have someone at your graduation or plan to go do something for yourself after graduation. Plan about having that baby, losing that weight, getting a job or losing a job, going into retirement. A lot of times this is something that is really hard for people. Ask for help, ask for support, and accept your reactions and work with them rather than trying to behave like a Buddhist or a Zen master because you read a book and you think, well, if I behave this way, that will make me more spiritual. No, you become more spiritual by being more spiritual. And as a result of that, your behavior changes. That's, that's the flow of the river. So I hope this helps. Hope you continue to come to Life Path Healings and keep us alive and would welcome questions. Welcome, welcome, welcome questions. I'm running out of things to talk about. All I want to do is tell you all the great podcasts out there to listen to that are already out there. If you have questions, you can go to my website. My phone number's there. You can text me. You can call me. You can email me. There's a submission form there. You can fill it out out there, put questions that way. You can message me on Facebook Messenger. You can direct message me through Instagram. There's no excuse. <laughs> anyway, I hope you're enjoying spring in spite of the war in Ukraine and the craziness in the world. And... Hope you continue to stay connected to yourself and to source. And remember that there is life after death. 
And I hope you continue most of all to be a superhero for yourself and a role model for yourself. Hope to see you soon.